You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinnereth, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth-dor, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And Yahweh gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Mizraphoth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as Yahweh said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses the servant of Yahweh had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned, and all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as Yahweh had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that Yahweh had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir, as far as Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings, and struck them, and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was Yahweh's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, and from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction 
with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that Yahweh had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 689 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, August 17th. 2023. That was a reading of Joshua chapter 11 in the Old Testament. The Old Testament of, I trust, your Bible, my Bible, our Bibles. Do we read this stuff? Do we read it? Do we believe it? Should. We really should. We should dig in, figure out what it's all about. What is this actually describing? What does it mean? These are important, weighty questions. And I don't have it all figured out. I don't. But one thing I trust is if I even just make an effort, I am making a statement. And if you are listening, then perhaps just possibly you agree with that statement. That statement being, this is relevant. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Here's a question. When we look at Joshua chapter 11, do we see what is happening as good? What I mean by that is when we look at what Joshua is doing, what Israel is doing here, are they doing what is good? Are these good works that they are making war? You might say, no, 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 no. War is never good. War is hell, right? That is the consensus. And it's a necessary evil. Well, Not so fast, because the implications there are when God is commanding Joshua and the people of Israel to make war, God is commanding them to do what is evil. And that's not true. That's not in keeping with what God's word says. In the whole counsel of God, never once do we have God commanding his servants, his servant, singular, or his servants, plural, to do what is evil. Although, interesting We do find an instance, an example here in this chapter of God hardening the hearts of Israel's enemies, and the purpose is stated explicitly, so that they will come against you, so that they will be devoted to destruction and not get mercy. God says, I've hardened their hearts. They've basically no hope. They basically have no chance. It's curtains for them. They are done. As soon as God hardens their hearts, that's it. So also, when we read in the book of Romans about God giving men over to a reprobate mind, even though we're talking hearts in the one case, we're talking minds in the other case, understand that this is a package deal. The hardening of hearts goes along with the giving over to a reprobate mind, which is to say an unreasonable mind, a mind incapable of reasoning, not just unreasonable in the sense of, well, you're not listening on this particular issue, but 
in general, as a matter of course, a mind that has been given over to a reprobate condition is incapable of reasoning, being reasoned with on anything. And we perhaps can understand how this would be when you think about interacting with people who are not reasonable. What typically is necessary, either to appeal to the instincts with regards to the shiny object, that would be a reward. Here, would you like some candy? Would you like some drink? Would you like some entertainment? Here, come here. Whether or not the rest of the deal, the rest of the arrangement is actually so good, they don't care. They want the temporary, immediate gratification. And now they're getting it. And whatever comes after that, so what? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, as some in the Greco-Roman world, as the New Testament was being written, were fond of saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is all there is to life. You might as well live it up now. A certain hedonistic impulse is reprobate and unreasonable. And here I'm not talking about those who really do love God and they enjoy what God has given to them, and they enjoy it fully. They enjoy the fruits of their labors. They enjoy the wife of their youth. They enjoy fellowship with God and man in an appropriate way. Actually, your joy being complete is something that should motivate you, but it takes a certain reasonableness, a certain carefulness to assess which of these things that are presented with me as options to do, partake in, say, feel, think, meditate on, be, which of these things will actually make my joy complete in the long run? Or is a certain taste going to turn sour? It started out as pleasant, but it will turn bitter as gall as I am chewing on it, as I am digesting it. The hedonist is actually giving up on long-term enjoyment of life long-term life, eternal life, when offered the option to confess sins against God, turn from them, turn towards righteousness, and love what is good. And here, in the battles between Israel, for whom God fights, and these kings, these enemies of Israel and of God, here we see men And yes, it would seem not just men, but all who breathed in their cities, in their towns, having chosen the pleasures of this life and having rejected obedience to God and loving what is good. Loving pleasure, not loving what is good. Loving pleasure, loving themselves, not loving truth. And you might say, well, this is all very abstract. War is not good. Battles are not good. Killing is not good. None of this is good. God's original intention wasn't for death and dying. And so how can any actions that are violent be good? There are some who think along these lines more broadly, but then they pick and choose exceptions. And so, for instance, if you offer them a bacon cheeseburger, they won't necessarily, some do, but they won't in most cases, 
say, no, thank you. God's original intention wasn't for animals to be eaten. And I don't even know that it was for dairy to be consumed, animal byproducts even. They won't say that. They'll say, oh, yes, please. Thank you. That smells delicious. Absolutely. Ah, yes, but there was violence done to the cow who was turned into hamburger, ultimately, and then fried up on a pan or cooked in my grill. There was violence done to that cow before it was made edible, like I'm offering you this burger right now. Or for another example, typically most of us, we don't say, ah, because God's original intention was for Adam and Eve to be naked in the garden and unashamed. Therefore, all of us should eschew clothing. Most of us don't go around, even if we parade in various states of undress, most of us don't go around lecturing others about how they should really be naked and unashamed because Adam and Eve were. There's a recognition that, well, wait a second, that was perhaps God's original design. Yes, I say perhaps, but it definitely was. But that's not the world as it is right now. The world as it was when Adam and Eve were in Eden, naked and unashamed, walking with God in the cool of the mist, that is not the world as it is now. And so, yes, we do wear clothing. We wear clothing to protect ourselves from the sun or from the cold or sometimes from the heat. We wear clothing to communicate a certain chastity or dedication or affiliation. Now, think about this for a moment. Clothing is a way of displaying what team you're on. So, for instance, two of my sons just recently started playing football. If they put on a random jersey and take to the field, will they be allowed to play for Dayspring? No, because Dayspring has a uniform. And that uniform has certain colors and patterns, and they're expected to show up with a clean jersey, clean uniform, and represent their team well. They'll be known. We'll know which one they are on the field because they'll wear their number, but they associate themselves with their team and therefore they get to play with that team on game day. And tonight is a scrimmage against Alt, by the way. If you're in the area and you're interested, come check it out. But they are going to be allowed to play because they have joined the team. They are wearing the jerseys and the pads and the helmet and the mouth guard and highly advised the sports cup. Meanwhile, they'll know who is not on their team by whether they wear the jersey of the opposition. And we don't lecture football players when this is how they decide who to tackle and who to run interference for. We say, yeah, that makes total sense. Of course, who else would you be tackling but the other team? Who else would you be running interference for but your own team? And all of that has to be within the bounds of the rules of the game. And we want good sportsmanship and all the rest. But we don't just blindly trust that everybody is going to play by the rules because we have an understanding that sometimes people forget. Sometimes unintentionally, they don't play according to the rules and they need to be reminded and maybe even given a penalty, yes, to remind them there need to be consequences in order for them to take it seriously that the game is played according to certain rules. 
And if they are intentionally trying to break the rules so as to win or get back at the other team in an unsportsmanlike way, in a vicious way, they may even be removed from the game, ejected from the game. They may even be thrown off the team. And all of this, again, is very obviously how we do these things. And nobody says, yeah, but ideally we would all just wear whatever we want. Freedom, right? Yeah, you know, if you want to play for a certain team, you put on the jersey and you play. But thinking about this differently, clothing, even just from a cultural standpoint, is one of the ways that we communicate who we want to associate with. You wear the company logo on your polo t-shirt or your baseball cap, and you are reminding everybody that you work for your corporation or your client if they give you a hat. Or you maybe remind people that this or that contract company works for you. You have a good relationship with them. They gave you this free hat after all. But then what is that also? With regards to modesty, in some sense, you're drawing attention to something about yourself. And that could be immodest, actually. Hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. Look who I work for. Look who I'm associated with. And you could take it too far. It could be a good, virtuous thing, or it could be a base, selfish, contentious thing. But generally speaking, we think, of course, of course he's going to wear a jacket that he got at the Christmas party. He won in a raffle that has his company's logo on the shoulder. Of course he's going to wear that. Yeah, that's cool. It's a nice jacket, we say. If we're complimentary and considerate and we want to honor the other person, hopefully we don't cross the line into flattery, but hopefully we do honor the other person and compliment them. And we don't get all bent out of shape about how not everybody gets that nice jacket. Did you think of that? How is it fair? You didn't earn that jacket. You don't deserve that jacket. Why don't I get a jacket like that? No. But then I say that, no sooner have I said that when it's worth pointing out that, again, the hardness of heart question and the unreasonable reprobate mind mindset, they do act in a covetous way, in an envious way, and that drives who they are violent against, who they are passive-aggressive against, sometimes just nip-nip-nipping at the heels to weary, to wear down, to eventually overtake and destroy who has provoked their negative emotions. Now they're all distracted about what they don't have, what they can't have, they think, because somebody else has it. You didn't build that. Somebody else built that, they might say, if they get all the way to the presidency even. And they have more power than any man in the world, they might even then be jealous and envious that anybody else would have something that doesn't belong to them. And so what do they do? In that case, they rape a country and proceed to try to tear down a civilization because actually it's not about you not having built it. It's about their not having built it. They want to tear it down because it wasn't their idea. They want to tear it down because they didn't build that. And so they're trying to tell you, you didn't build that so that you are distracted while they dismantle it and tear it down. It's not the point whether I built it or whether I had help building it. It's closer to the point that you didn't build it. And so hands off, buddy. But then understand the effects of sin on a culture, on a civilization, on a whole region of 
the world, the effects of sin, will make it the rule rather than the exception that people are vicious and unreasonable and destructive and violent, not just covetous, like they're having certain thoughts and having certain feelings. No, no. They act out of their covetousness, their envy, their jealousy. They do all manner of violence. They slander other people on their way to getting everyone else to look the other way and be remarkably uncurious when it comes time to destroy the people who are being slandered. It may start as coveting and lusting for what doesn't belong to them, but it ultimately will feed right into slandering, saying false, ugly things about the people they don't like. And from there, because that's a setup, because that's laying the groundwork, from there, they will proceed to abuse more physically, perhaps procedurally, but then that will get old at a certain point. And if it doesn't do the trick, well, they'll have to get more and more active in their aggression. And then what ensues is acts of physical violence up to, but not limited to, murder and rape. And yet it all comes from the condition of their heart and their mind and whether they have embraced what is evil. And actually, as a matter of fact, that's how you should understand. And that's how you can see what is happening that God is commanding Joshua and Israel to do in Joshua chapter 11 as good. It's not good in the abstract, in a vacuum, to kill and to fight battles and to wage wars. It's not good for its own sake, but it's good for the sake of what it accomplishes, which is, in this case, punishing those who do what is evil. God says, go do it. God knows. You say, well, I'm not convinced. Great. Cool story. Fun fact. I'll keep that in mind. Same here, actually, to a great extent. But God has it figured out. Do you trust that it's enough for God to understand and to know the situation that these people do what is evil? Also, when we think to ourselves about, well, but surely not everybody was so bad, we should also keep in mind the story of Abram and Lot. Abraham negotiates with God regarding the destruction of the cities of the plain in Genesis. God tips off Abraham that he's going to destroy the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah in particular, and Abraham recalls that a certain nephew of his lives there with his family, and so he haggles a little bit with God. What if there are a certain number of righteous people there? Would you still destroy the city? Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? No, God says. No. So what does God do in the case of Lot and his family? God sends angels in and gets Lot and his wife and his daughters out. Or rather, that is how it would have gone, except Lot's wife has a reprobate mind and she has a hardness of heart and she turns back. When she was supposed to not turn back, she turns back to look longingly, wishing it weren't so, in some sense, actually disagreeing with God by looking back longingly on the city that God will destroy, she is saying that city is good and God's judgment here is not good, but she should have known better. She lived there. 
for crying out loud, her own daughters were offered up to a violent mob that had come to rape guests who happened to be angels. And so that didn't happen. She looks back and she's turned into a pillar of salt. And that's it. That's the end of her story. She's done. She gets judgment. If she wants to pick sides and choose that side, well, then she will have the same outcome, the same end as Sodom and Gomorrah and the people therein. So then it's just Lot and his daughters. And Lot's daughters don't turn out to be such great people. Not really. They get their dad drunk, which probably given the loss of his wife and what just happened to the city and all of this trauma and distress, it probably wasn't all that hard to say, hey, here, have something to drink. And so by the end of the story of Lot and his family being extricated from Sodom and Gomorrah before God destroys the cities of the plain, you realize, ah, you know what? That really did a number on the whole crew. And why didn't they leave of their own accord at a certain point when they realized how corrupt and how wicked these people were, right? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been better for Lot to have gotten his wife and his daughters out of there? It would seem so. Yeah, it would seem he missed an opportunity there, which is probably also part of what he was thinking. It was his responsibility to get them out of there. Now his wife is gone. and It's his fault after a fashion. Not totally, but certainly he bears some responsibility for not having gotten them out of there. My point in bringing all of that up is when we look at these peoples, there are a few reasons why we should not suppose, we should not entertain the possibility that God was being unjust in requiring everyone to be put to the sword. One is everybody who was decent had been slaughtered, had been destroyed systematically by the corrupt people And that's part of what it means that the cup of God's wrath is filled up, that those who are innocent, those who are decent, those who are kind, those who do just mind their own business and who are not vicious, wicked, they are systematically purged from a civilization by the wicked until it's just the wicked. It's only the wicked people, the wicked men, women, and yes, children can be wicked as well. Make no mistake particularly if they're being raised by wicked men and women. Another possibility is, however, that the righteous or those who were decent, who were innocent, who were kind, gentle souls, hospitable, pleasant, generous, reverential, modest, they left a long time ago. These peoples in Canaan were what was left after the decent folk had said, all right, we're out of here. I can't take it anymore. We got to move. Pack it up. Let's go. Our first thought, our first feeling should not be where we camp out. Far too many people do. And I think what that reveals is they want an excuse. They're looking for an excuse to find fault with God. And if you peel that back, what's behind that is some of that same hardness of heart, that same reprobate mind, which says we love our own sin. We love our own wickedness. We don't love God. But what's better? What's better is to say, when in all honesty, we don't understand, I don't understand. Even Abraham negotiated with God and asked, and maybe it was an honest question, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked, God? Honest question, not accusing you, not finding fault, not criticizing, not presuming, but honest question. Show me your ways. 
Show me who you are. How do you operate? How would you handle this? But we should start with humility before the biblical text because we start from a place of humility before God. And if we start there, then God gives grace. It says he gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Speaking of wisdom, though, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And one of the things I have discussed off and on here and there with my sons, with my friends in recent years is the question of whether it's possible for those who are not Christians, who are not people of the book, they don't know Jesus, they don't have the Bible, they don't study the Bible, is it possible for them to have wisdom? If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is it possible for them to have wisdom? And I would say, after having thought about this a fair amount, again, go back to Romans, where Paul is talking about the truth about God being written on our hearts, written into creation. You look at creation and men are without excuse. If they don't see a reflection of the almighty God in man, man made in God's image after his likeness, if we don't see that, we're without excuse. Whether or not you have the Old Testament and the New Testament, whether you can read, much less you do read, much less you do study, much less you do understand any of it, men are without excuse. And yet, that doesn't just mean you're culpable. It also means you have an opportunity to see how God has so ordered the universe, not just physically, but also spiritually and morally. You see that and you discern the patterns and you do what is right, maybe because it works. Augustine talks about this in the city of God, where he talks about the city of God and the city of man, two cities, one established by God, which is eternal, and those who have eternal life in Christ will inhabit that city forever. The other is the city of man, and the city of man is populated by those who are not in Christ. And that city is temporary and, yes, often vicious, but other times it's more arbitrary. And there's a futility, but sometimes the futility is successful, and sometimes even what we would call success in practical terms, could be attributed to adherence to virtue. That is, those who just want to do what works can't help but admit that when you do the right thing, what must be right objectively, not just when it's convenient, when you do the right thing, there are benefits. It goes well for you. We've observed. (laughs) We've studied this out. And hey, Actually, there are good effects. There are fruits of labors that we will enjoy if we do what is right. And interestingly, when Augustine is answering the charge of the pagans regarding how Rome, the Roman Empire, the Roman people, the Roman civilization fell to the barbarians, succumbed, when he's answering the charge of the pagans that it's all the Christians' fault because Christians came in and displaced the manly virtues of the Romans, the noble Romans and Greeks, and their paganism, the pagans said, could be credited for the virtuous manly strength, vigor, competence, effectiveness of the Roman idea, the Roman mind, the Roman heart, the Roman body, the Roman body politic. It was these Christians who came in 
and as Nietzsche might say, brought their slave religion and corrupted Rome, essentially. So weakened Rome, that Rome was weaker than the barbarians eventually, finally. Augustine tackles that charge head on because against the Christians, it's whatever, right? Against the Christians, if you want to be critical, yeah, okay, we're not perfect. We're not all so wise, as you might say, so wealthy, so strong, so competent all the time. But if this ultimately is a charge against Christ and against God, oh buddy, I need to bring a defense of my faith and demolish strongholds here. Take captive every thought. That was Augustine's mindset. And he does so brilliantly in the city of God. He does so at length and with skill, showing that the ancestors of his generation of Romans were virtuous because virtue produced good effects. And insofar as the Romans were more virtuous because they observed that it was more profitable to be virtuous, not just to pretend to virtue, but to be virtuous, Augustine said the Romans prevailed. They were blessed. They got a benefit being virtuous because they were virtuous more so than the surrounding nations and peoples who weren't noble like that. They weren't intentional like that. And even if they did it for the wrong reasons, even if they did it in a certain futility, ultimately, eternally, in relation to Yahweh, in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, at least temporally, by way of common grace, they prevailed, they endured. And yes, even, we would say, if we believe in God's providence, his sovereignty, his goodness, his full, total, and complete ability to accomplish his promises and his purposes, we would say God blessed the Romans and the Greeks in part to set the stage for the incarnation of Jesus Christ, for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Roman roads and the Pax Romana facilitated quite a lot of evangelistic work in the first few centuries AD. A lot of evangelistic work that would not have been possible were it not for those Roman roads, or it wouldn't have been nearly so easy without Roman roads and Roman peace. And when I say Roman peace, what I mean is the Romans went against pagan barbarians and defeated them and imposed peace through strength, like Reagan would say. Rather, Reagan would say peace through strength, like the Romans would say. And oh, by the way, it's not for no reason that a lot of Marxists who want to tear down Western civilization also want weak men. They prioritize weak men and they laugh at virtue and they say there is no such thing as virtue. Why? Because they're hedonists, they're covetous, they want to weaken those they would destroy. Those the gods would destroy, they first make ridiculous. Those the Marxists would destroy, they first make ridiculous. But somebody who wasn't ridiculous and who I'm reading right now was Marcus Aurelius. Goodreads has this to say about the philosopher emperor. Born Rome, Italy, May 2nd, 121. He died March 28th, 180. And when I say 180, I mean 180 AD, Anno Domini. Marcus Aurelius Antoninus Augustus 
often referred to as the Wise, was emperor of the Roman Empire from 161 to his death in 180. He was the last of the five good emperors and is also considered one of the more important Stoic philosophers. His two decades as emperor were marked by near continual warfare. He was faced with a series of invasions from German tribes and by conflicts with the Parthian Empire in the east. His reign also had to deal with an internal revolt in the east led by Avidius Cassius. Marcus Aurelius's work, Meditations, written in Greek, while on campaign between 170 and 180, is still revered as a literary monument to a government of service and duty and has been praised for its exquisite accent and its infinite tenderness. That is the work I am reading right now. Meditations, in particular, specifically the translation by George Long and Duncan Steen or I should say I'm listening to the audiobook version published 2011. And my interest here is not to give you a full accounting of meditations. I haven't finished it yet. I noticed yesterday on my way home from work that it was going to not be in my library, not available on Audible anymore as of September 1st, at least in the version that I have. And so I thought, well, I'd better go ahead I had added it to the library because it was included in my Audible Plus membership. So I'd better go ahead and read it now. It's not very long, five hours on normal speed. That is two and a half hours on double time. And so far, it is a fascinating work. It's very crisp. It is exquisite. It's very unhurried, but expert. It is firm, but it is gentle. It is commanding but it is inquisitive. In short, it seems to me a work of honesty. Here's what I think is the vision of the good life. Marcus Aurelius presents that. That's how he presents it. Here is what I have found to be good and wise. This is the good and wise way to live, to think, to feel, to relate. And oh, by the way, too, here are a lot of unwise ways that have bad ends. Here's the good way that I have found to live, and it has a good end. It has a good effect. Here are a lot of other ways that are not so wise, and I've seen people live that way. I've seen them relate that way, and it's not so good. It doesn't go well for them. And like Solomon, Marcus Aurelius concludes, yes, the same event happens to us all, the wise and the fool, the virtuous and the vicious the temperate and the uncontrolled. But I have seen wisdom produce better lives. Better lives for the individual, better lives for those around them, better lives for all concerned. And what's interesting about that is Marcus Aurelius being a Stoic you might think means that Marcus Aurelius doesn't distinguish between good and evil or between what you would want and what you wouldn't want because to some extent that's the reputation of Stoicism is to be unmoved by events, good or bad, to have a certain apathy, indifference, ambivalence to all of the above 
if I turn over to Wikipedia, for instance, here's the entry on Stoicism. The first few paragraphs I'll read for you. Stoicism is one of the four major schools of thought established in the Hellenistic period. So think ancient Greece. It was founded in the ancient Agora of Athens by Zeno of Sidium around 300 BC. The Stoics believed that the practice of virtue is enough to achieve eudaimonia, a well-lived, flourishing life. The Stoics identified the path to achieving it with a life spent practicing certain virtues in everyday life, such as courage or temperance and living in accordance with nature. Alongside Aristotle's ethics, the Stoic tradition forms one of the major founding approaches to virtue ethics. The Stoics are especially known for teaching that virtue is the only good for human beings and that external things such as health, wealth, pleasure are not good or bad in themselves, a diaphora, but have value as material for virtue to act upon. Many Stoics, such as Seneca and Epictetus, emphasized that because virtue is sufficient for happiness, a sage would be emotionally resilient to misfortune. The Stoics also held that certain destructive emotions resulted from errors of judgment, and they believed people should aim to maintain a will called propheresis that is in accordance with nature. Because of this, the Stoics thought the best indication of an individual's philosophy was not what a person said, but how a person behaved to live a good life, one had to understand the rules of the natural order since they believed everything was rooted in nature. Stoicism flourished throughout the Roman and Greek world until the 3rd century AD, and among its inheritance was Emperor Marcus Aurelius. It experienced a decline after Christianity became the state religion in the 4th century AD. Since then, it has seen revivals, notably in the Renaissance, Neo-Stoicism, and in the contemporary era, modern Stoicism. Now, let's take a step back. Let's digest what we just read for a moment. Eudaimonia is, you might say, a vision of the good life, or rather it is the good life. But then eudaimonia is a vision of the good life. If you asked the Stoics, they would say eudaimonia is the good life. But then if we're assessing and separating out a little bit, giving a little bit of cushion for ourselves to evaluate and assess Stoicism, we have to admit that this is a vision of the good life particular to the Stoics. Not everybody was a Stoic. Not everybody agreed that virtue was where it was at. If you're thinking biblically, remember how Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes that the same event happens to them all. The same event happens to them both, the wise man and the fool. So what's the point, right? What is the benefit to wisdom if you're just going to die like the fool at the end of the day. All your wisdom won't prevent you from death being the conclusion of your life. And you may prolong your life, prolong your days by wisdom or some tragedy, some random happening may cut your life short at any moment. And actually, interestingly, to this point in meditations where I have gotten to so far, Marcus Aurelius has advised his reader to always regard yourself as an old man. Know that you are mortal. Know that every day may be your last day and live accordingly. Live with a certain cultivated disregard for your life because we will all die. And that is a different way of framing it. Instead of saying, well, we're all going to die. And so I might as well 
just do whatever I want to. Marcus Aurelius says, we're all going to die, and so you might as well do what is right. If you suffer for it, well, at least you suffered doing what is right. And this is very similar. It's not the same, but it's very similar to what we find in our New Testament. It's close. He's not far from the kingdom in a lot of the ideas that he's articulating, a lot of the things that he's saying. But again, this goes back to what Paul says in Romans. The truth about God is written on our hearts, and it's written in creation. Unrighteous men suppress the truth through their unrighteousness. We need God to deliver us from our own unrighteousness, our own wickedness, our own sin, our own love for our dark deeds, so that we will know the truth and be free indeed, so that we will live eternally with him. But think also about this stoic notion of our health, our wealth, our pleasure, or lack thereof, all being material for virtue to act upon. And now think about misfortune and think about difficult economic times and conditions in America right now or in the world more broadly. Think about political strife, people angry with one another, unwilling to listen, indisposed to hear one another, to be cordial, to be kind, to be respectful. And think to yourself actually about how vice scaled up destroys not just people on an individual basis, destroys peoples, destroys nations, destroys civilizations. And yet virtue builds them up. Malachi, the prophet in the Old Testament, says the one God was seeking godly offspring when he made them male and female in the beginning and put a portion of the spirit between them. He was seeking godly offspring. He blessed them. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. When men and women and children are vicious, they do not do that. For that matter, when men and women and children are vicious, they're hostile to that. You can know who is vicious, who is a bad sort, in large part by how they talk about how they relate to children being born, young people getting married. Here's one of the tells in our day that wicked men, selfish men, corrupt men heap scorn on young couples getting married. A part of the reason for that is because they're covetous. They're jealous. It's not they themselves who are getting married. Perhaps they desire the young woman, for instance, who is marrying someone else. And now she's off limits or now she's the forbidden fruit. And now they want to drive a wedge and try to take her for themselves because they love wickedness. They love evil. That's their game. A young couple gets married and has a child and they won't restrain themselves. If they can, they won't restrain themselves from, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for you going on and on and on and on without a care for how the other person feels or what the other person believes, ridiculing this decision to have children, to procreate, to be fruitful and multiply. You know, in recent weeks, I had an interaction with somebody fairly highly placed in proportion to, in relation to my career. And this C-suite executive asked me in passing casually how many children I have and 
which number this is going to be. And I told him, I have eight and our ninth is due in November. He laughed long and loud in my face without any reserve and let out a trail of expletives as if to say, you fool, you idiot. I let it pass without saying any more. I walked away because that says more about him than it does about me. But that kind of engagement, that kind of relationship for the vicious is what tears down a people, tears down a nation, tears down a civilization. In fact, if you would read Polybius, Polybius says that is what the beginning of the end was for the Greeks. When the young men became effeminate, and oh, by the way, effeminate doesn't have to just mean physically weak. A man can be physically strong and effeminate. He can work out. He can go to the gym all the time, have great muscle mass and definition. He can be physically strong, but he's effeminate. Why do I say that? Because he has weak character, because he's self-indulgent, because he's passive. Perhaps also he enjoys the company of other men, shall we say, more than he enjoys commitment, virtue, what is good, godliness, in a word. Polybius says, as he explains to the Romans, in whose employ he is as a Greek, as a historian commissioned to find the answer to this question that the Romans want to know, so they also will not go the way of the Greeks. Can we modify something in the Greek tradition? We like the Greeks. We see a lot of value there, but can we modify what you Greeks were doing at some point? Where do we modify? Where do we fine-tune your prototype, your example, so that we don't suffer the same fate at the end, but so that we can get all the benefits right up until that point where you guys took a wrong turn. Where did you take a wrong turn? Let's go back. Polybius, please explain to us the history of not just your people, but also our people in relation to one another. And be honest, we need to understand this. Polybius says it's because the men of Greece became effeminate and they pursued one another as men. They were boy lovers and homosexuals and effeminate. And if they were interested in women, they were not interested in marriage. And if they happened to get married, after all, anyways, due to social pressure, they did so begrudgingly, complaining. They tried not to have children. And if they did happen to have a couple of children, accidentally, despite their best efforts, despite their worst efforts, you might say, they paid no heed to the one or two children who were born to them, born to their households. They did not raise them. And you don't need very many generations of that being the way of things before a more muscular, more assertive, more confident, more virtuous neighbor says, all right, we're getting a lot of trouble bleeding over the borders from your neighborhood. We're going to come in and we're going to fix this. We're getting a lot of static. We're getting a lot of dysfunction here lately. We're going to come in and we're going to sort this out. Oh, now you have found a will to fight? We'll see. We'll fight you. And maybe we win, maybe we don't. But when we lose, we'll go back home. We'll review the tapes. We'll hit you again. Next time, we'll do better because we'll modify. The Greeks 
were given over to a reprobate mind. Ironically, they became wise in their own eyes. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They were given over to a reprobate mind, a mind incapable of reasoning. Regardless of the fanfare and the reputation the Greeks have, they weren't all philosophers after all. Philosopher means lover of wisdom, and that generation that was conquered by the Romans did not love wisdom. We'll just put it that way. Their hearts were hardened. That's part of the reason why they wouldn't adapt their strategy when their phalanxes encountered the legions on the battlefield. But consider the curious case in our day, coming back to the present, of a Luther couple near Red Lodge, Montana, who shot a bear in their living room. A black bear, to be precise. This story was published by Chris Jorgensen, August 15th. And it tells the tale of a couple who woke up to barking noises from the dog. About 3 a.m., Celie Oblander and her fiancé, living together, said that their dog, Maisie, was just going nuts. They brushed it off. They thought, ah, well, we live in the country. It's probably just a raccoon or a skunk. But no, the dog was really not just letting it go. About 3 a.m., Tom Bullcum, Celie's fiancé, came downstairs to see what was going on, to check it out. And five feet away from him in the living room, there stood a black bear. The article says, quoting them, they stood face to face for about five seconds. The bear had broken in through a window in this home about 15 miles from Red Lodge. The bear started making noises like he owned the place and he wasn't going to leave. And because, Jorgensen writes, because the bear was between Tom and the locked door, there was no way to show him out. So it would seem their preference would have been not a violent end to this, but to let the bear out. Get out. Out, 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 out. Get out. What did they do instead? They shot the bear. Killed the bear. In their home, here's this big, stinky bear. Blood everywhere. An awful way to decorate your house is with a dead bear that you haven't properly cleaned and taxidermized. But what's interesting here, (laughs) what's interesting is when they called the game warden to remove the bear, get it out of here, please. Obviously, we don't want to keep it in our house. The warden said, according to the reporter with Billings Gazette, who wrote the story, the warden said, and I quote, shooting the bear was probably the best thing to do. Once they get in your house, they usually come back and want to get in again. Even if you could have gotten the bear out, the bear probably would have just tried it again sometime. And maybe you wouldn't have been so fortunate the next time around. I bring this up because it's a curious look. On the one hand, you might say, well, this is a little bit of stoicism, right? Being so indifferent, so casual about a big black bear in your living room at 3 a.m. They're just being stoics. No, 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 no. You can sense a certain reluctance to condone, to legitimize the shooting of the black bear, even just in the wording. Shooting the bear was probably the best thing to do. Uh, Yeah, yeah. You think? Why do they need to say it? Why do they need to say that? Because readers in the cities, especially transplants from other states, will look at this and they'll say, "What? why did they have to shoot the bear? See, this is why people should only live in the cities so that they don't live 
where the bears want to live. This is the problem. The problem is man has encroached upon nature. Nature should be left to do what nature does. Man should just stop building houses and living in them, taking wives, having sons and daughters, giving their sons and daughters away in marriage when they come of age, getting grandchildren thereby, planting gardens, planting vineyards. You know, you plant a vineyard or a garden and you're going to draw wildlife and then the wildlife are going to start eating your produce and then you're going to shoot the wildlife. And see, this is what's wrong with the world is people think they can do these things and it's so arrogant. And that's why the world is going to come to a fiery end due to global warming. It's a whole lot of nonsense. It's a whole lot of hardness of heart and a reprobate mind in relation to what God blessed when he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's this kind of thinking that would even debate whether you should have shot the bear in your living room at 3 a.m. A 250 to 300 pound black bear in your living room Oh, I don't know. Should we shoot it? Should we not? Maybe we should just let it eat us. It has as much right, maybe more, to live here. Its carbon footprint is surely smaller than ours. It's this kind of thinking, Polybius would say, which led to the downfall of the Greeks. The Romans wanted to know, are we at least as wise as the Romans? Maybe not anymore. Maybe not. At least not those Romans who commissioned Polybius to go and get them the answer to the riddle of what happened to the Greeks. But let's consider another story. This one, not from my home state, Montana, but from my current state of residence, Colorado. Federal judge halts Colorado gun law, raising purchase age to 21 years old, hours before taking effect. Brandon Dre reports for the Daily Wire. I live here in Colorado, and might I just add, yesterday I saw a news item as I was scrolling just briefly on a break at work, Facebook, that Colorado has fallen out of the top 10 best states to live in, according to someone's ranking. The biggest reason why Colorado has fallen from favor to about middle of the pack is because of crime. Crime is a problem in the state of Colorado. Crime is an increasing problem in the state of Colorado. The Democrats in Colorado want to solve the problem of crime by making it increasingly difficult for citizens of the state or of this country to purchase firearms. That's their solution. Ban private firearms ownership or so restrict it, so control and confine it that people won't want to purchase firearms or they won't know how to use those firearms because one of the things they want is to make it impossible for you to fire a gun on your private property, even if you live out in the country. They would make it illegal. They limit the number of bullets you can have in a magazine or in a clip. I couldn't sell my 9mm, one of my 9mm handguns here recently because it's not legal. I forgot, it's not legal to sell a so-called high-capacity firearm in the state of Colorado. My 9 mil holds 17 rounds. Yeah, but what if a uh, pack of rabid dogs is threatening my children or my neighbor? Maybe I need 17 rounds. What if 
a gang of roving youth, fatherless, vagrant criminals decides they want to jump me. Maybe I need 17 rounds. What if the drug cartel decides they want to make an example or what have you out of one of my sons? Maybe I need 17 rounds. Well, not so fast. The state of Colorado is trying to tell residents of the state, we don't trust you to own that firearm. Now, what is this both a cause and an effect of? It's a cause and an effect of effeminacy, unmanliness. Raising the purchase age to 21 years old, how does that make even a lick of sense when you don't have to be 21 to join the military? You can join the military and you will be given a, not semi-automatic, a fully automatic weapon to train with and then ultimately to use on the battlefield if it comes to that. At 18, 19, 20 years old, the difference is they are in control of that or so they think. And so it's good. But if they're not in control, what they mean, by the way, is when they talk about gun control on the left, they mean they control the guns and they control you and your access to firearms. They don't mean you exercising self-control. They're not so acquainted with this idea of self-control, self-government, self-determination. But they want to raise the purchase age minimum to 21 years old in the state of Colorado precisely because they want men to be weak and effeminate and also because they themselves, in many cases, are weak and effeminate, covetous, and unfamiliar with what it is to be a husband and father in a traditional conservative sense. They're not progressives, they're transgressives, and they're the kind who would say, yeah, call animal control, call the game warden, just lock yourself in your room and call the game warden at 3 a.m. and just wait. Yeah, I know you have to fly out at 6 a.m. in the morning. You'll just have to miss that flight. Thankfully, a federal judge halted this gun law hours before it would have taken effect. I would guess Rocky Mountain gun owners is feeling pretty good about themselves. I went to a legislative briefing here several months ago where they warned us that there were a whole slew of bills that the supermajority of Democrats in the state of Colorado were going to try and ram through while they have the votes, but that it was likely, it was probable that those laws would be found to be unconstitutional and they really wouldn't carry any weight for long. But what was, what was the caution? The caution was it's likely, which is to say it's not certain, the Constitution is an impediment, but it isn't to say that the Constitution is going to stop anybody unless somebody speaks up and says, hey, listen, that's not constitutional. You can't do that. Just like the Democrats want to say to a 19-year-old, no, you can't buy a firearm. Those who actually take their oath of office seriously, their oath to uphold the Constitution, need to tell the Democrats, no, you can't do that. What is the vision of the good life for those who would bemoan, mourn, regret the killing of a black bear in a living room 15 miles from Red Lodge, Montana. What is the vision of the good life for Democrats who would mourn, who would bemoan the halting of a gun law, which says to an 18-year-old, you can go off and die for the U.S. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Space Force, but you can't 
buy a firearm to protect yourself, your family, your friends, if a black bear breaks into your home at 3 a.m.? What's their vision of the good life? And what is their idea of virtue? What do they believe to be virtuous? Or does virtue have any relation at all to their position on these things? It seems to me virtue doesn't enter into it. At least not for them. But this is material for our virtue to act upon. Speaking of predators, Bernadette Giacomazzo over at Daily Express US published a piece August 8th. Murder of FBI agents leads to alleged pedophile ring bust. 98 perverts arrested. What you have here is an FBI agent, Schwarzenberger and Alfin, who were both shot dead in 2021 as they were attempting to investigate, get to the bottom of what they suspected to be a large network of men and probably some women who prey upon children, who kidnap them, and sell access to them for sex to adults. These two FBI agents were killed as they were trying to investigate these things. And here's my question. My question is, what is the vision of the good life that drives men and women who want to protect children to even be willing to risk their lives, lose their lives. What is the vision of the good life? Is it not that there is such a thing as objective right and objective wrong? Is it not the conviction that it is wrong to do violence to children to kidnap children, to take them away from their parents and treat them as slaves, abuse, molest, rape them. Just think for a moment what it would pretend for our civilization if we did not have any men or women willing to protect children from predators. And by predators, I mean wild animals, sure, but also reprobate people evil people. It's unfortunate, highly unfortunate that these two FBI agents were killed as they were trying to get children out of sex slavery, rescue them, protect them, bring to justice those who abuse them. It's tragic, but imagine a scenario in which it had not been these two FBI agents who wound up dead Imagine a scenario in which they had actually killed those who drew weapons on them with murderous intent. We must realize that it is not a good thing in the abstract, in a vacuum, for anyone to die, for anyone to perish. You shouldn't celebrate, you shouldn't be glad for the death of the wicked, but it would be a good thing in context for rapists and murderers to be stopped. 
because the vision of the good life there is we live at peace. We are able to be virtuous. We are able to live quiet lives. We should aspire to live quiet lives. It's interesting to me, going back to the Stoicism article, it's interesting that the Stoic would say, we know your philosophy based on what you do, how you behave, how you relate, not by what you say, not sophistry. No, no, how you behave, what do you do? That tells me whether you actually love wisdom. This is, again, not far from the kingdom where James would say, show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show you what I believe to be true and good and beautiful by what I do. Yes, please, by all means, explain. Do speak, do clarify, do deliberate, do reason with one another, but not instead of living it out. Not instead of doing the good that you ought to do. Proverbs would tell us, in all toil there is a profit, but mere talk, which is to say only talk, when it's just talk, 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 mere talk tends only to poverty. In all toil there is a profit. It's a scary thing when profit is demonized, vilified, stigmatized, ostracized for those who believe in what is true, who do what is good, who love wisdom, when they are said to be corrupt just by virtue of profit, that is a evil thing. That's a very Marxist thing. That's a very communistic position to take. But it comes from a place of envy, covetousness, resentment, jealousy. That is the way an aspiring thief, slanderer, rapist, and murderer thinks. I didn't build it, and so I want to tear it down. That woman's not mine, and so... I want her all the more. Those children are someone else's children, and so I want to take them and corrupt them. And yet, this has always been, for all of human history, in a fallen world, with men and women having sinful natures, born into a sinful condition by virtue of, or I should say, due to the vice of our ancestor Adam, the first man, There have always been those who would destroy whatever they did not build, whoever they can't have. And on the other hand, those who do what is right and are willing to suffer and see that as a canvas of sorts on which to paint a virtuous life. Even if I suffer for doing what is good, what is good is still good, no less. For one last story, consider... Another piece over at Daily Express US, this one by Jacob Kessler, published about a week ago. The headline is, Archaeologists Discover Lost 1,300-Year-Old Town with Ball Game Pitches. Kessler writes, In a remarkable archaeological discovery, a long-lost settlement, potentially dating back over 1,300 years, has been uncovered in Mexico. A team of archaeologists from Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History, INAH, stumbled upon this pre-Hispanic town in Guerrero State's Costa Grande region, situated along the Pacific coast. The sprawling settlement spans an impressive area of approximately 79 acres on communal land in Tecpan de Galena municipality. This groundbreaking find came to light when locals alerted archaeologists about several mounds in the vicinity. 
During a three-day survey of the surface, researchers documented a total of 26 minor mounds encircling a central monumental mound towering at 73.5 meters high. The site appears to have been a hub of various activities in ancient times. Evidently, the site was not merely a residential area, but also featured architectural elements such as altars and structures associated with water storage. Among the remarkable findings were elongated structures that hint at the existence of squares, residential zones, and even ballgame courts. Archaeologists discovered stelae, stone slabs often adorned with inscriptions or illustrations and commonly serving as gravestones. The recovered ceramic artifacts played a pivotal role in dating when the settlement was inhabited. The analysis of these artifacts indicates the town was inhabited during the Classic period, A.D. 200 to 650, and persisted until the late post-Classic period, A.D. 1200 to 1521. According to historical accounts, the settlement possibly corresponded to Ampankelikon, an area that was documented in the late 16th century manuscript Matricula de Tributos. The Matricula de Tributos is a manuscript compiled just before the Spanish conquest of Mexico, documenting tributes paid by subdued settlements to the Aztec Empire, the region encompassing Ampankelikon, was integrated into the Aztec Empire between A.D. 1497 and A.D. 1502, a conquest well-documented in history. Now, I say this, I mention it, and what was I talking about with Joshua chapter 11 at the start of this episode? These peoples that Israel made war against as God fought for Israel against the peoples of Canaan. Remember how the king's of the Amorites responded when the men of Gibeon, the people of Gibeon, decided to make peace with Israel. The Amorite kings decided to make war against Gibeon, and they were planning on wiping them out, destroying them, annihilating them. Why? Because you broke rank. You don't get to do that. It's like when somebody wants out of a violent gang, what very often happens, they get killed. No, no, you don't get to leave. You start leaving, everybody's going to want to leave. It's like the Berlin Wall. The ugliness of the Berlin Wall is that it wasn't a wall designed to keep predators out, like black bears in a cabin in Red Lodge, Montana. You want to keep the black bear out so that you can sleep peaceably and safely inside. No, the Berlin Wall was to keep East German people in, to keep the Soviet citizens imprisoned by their own government. Why? Because there were evil designs that had been carried out, were being carried out, would be on into the future. And if people could just leave, next thing you knew, people leaving would lead to people saying, you know what? I actually don't want to leave. I think we just need you to not be in charge anymore because you're evil, because you're bad, because you're corrupt, because you're vicious, because you're depraved. And so those who would effect to leave, perhaps trying to climb over the Berlin Wall, for instance, for example, would very often find themselves shot by Soviet soldiers. Well, so also, those Amorite kings were going to come against Gibeon and destroy Gibeon because Gibeon had decided, here's our chance to turn over a new leaf, better that than destruction. God had other designs, God had other plans. Joshua went against the kings of the Amorites and defeated them in battle. But also, 
think back 500 years to the Aztecs and the arrival of Spaniards, the conquistadors, always presented as only villainous, only wanting gold, only thinking of material wealth. Never mind that there was a broader context. No, we don't need that. Let's just go with Howard Zinn's take on this. Let's just go with the Marxist interpretation of these things, shall we? Never mind that the Aztecs themselves had conquered and subjugated and were oppressing all of the surrounding peoples and that their religion, their cult involved taking captives, men, women, and children from vanquished neighbors, parading them through the streets of Tenochtitlan, taking them to the top of their pyramid, cutting their hearts beating still from their chests while they looked on before throwing them down the stairs, cutting them up, serving them to the families of the priests. That's who the Aztecs were. That's what they were about. That's what they did. That's why the surrounding peoples, when they saw the Spaniards, said, hey, like the men of Gibeon, we'd like to join you. Please help us to remove these guys. These guys have been preying on us, our wives, our children. We will help you to fight them and to conquer them. And the Spaniards, for their part, said, yeah, that's a great idea. That doesn't mean that everything the Spaniards did was correct or that every Spaniard was a hero or anything like that. But it does mean there's a little bit more to it than what has been conventionally taught to you, probably. If you get your info from corporate news media or from the public education system or from mainstream scholarship on this, which wants to flatter and certainly not provoke the zeitgeist, which is anti-Christian, which is opposed to the social imaginary of the Christian West in the interest of multiculturalism, the post-war consensus, world peace, and all that. But what's the vision of the good life for an Aztec emperor or priest round about the close of the 15th century AD? Their vision of the good life is to come into an area like the one we're finding in Mexico, come into that area, and if they didn't build it, make war, take captive, destroy, otherwise enslave, subjugate, savage. What's the vision of the good life? For those who would say, I've got an idea. Let's kidnap children. Let's take them when their parents aren't paying attention. Let's kidnap them. Let's hold them hostage. Let's sell access to them. What's the vision of the good life there? What's the vision of the good life for those who run interference for or turn a blind eye to or try to rationalize, justify, excuse, minimize that kind of behavior? What's their vision of the good life? What's the vision of the good life for those who would say people just shouldn't get married and have children in the first place so that we don't have black bears being shot dead in somebody's living room 15 miles from Red Lodge? The vision of the good life is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Do what feels good. Be a creature of instinct. Don't love wisdom. It's all the same. The same event happens to them both. That's as far as I need to read. And now what's the vision of the good life for God's people? For God's people, the vision of the good life is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. To fear God and to keep his commandments. 
to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, to teach only what accords with sound doctrine, to demonstrate our faith by our works, and to believe what is true about God, about ourselves, about the created order. That's the vision of the good life for God's people. And even if you're not a Christian, if your vision of the good life more closely corresponds to that, there will be a good outcome, a much better outcome anyways, for you and everyone around you. There will be a much better outcome. In closing, thinking a little bit about what good can be gleaned from the Stoic philosophical ideal. It is wise for us to see trials, setbacks, challenges, suffering as material for virtue to act upon. It's good for us to think of it in those terms. It just needs to go the rest of the way and be linked to because we love God. Out of love for God, we endure suffering for righteousness sake, not just suffering period, being virtuous, but suffering for righteousness' sake, being inseparable from the righteousness part of it. This idea of keeping your emotions under control and understanding the nature of people and places and things and how that all relates to what you experience or what you get, what you don't get, a certain detached stability is appropriate to the end of behaving in a virtuous manner, responding, thinking, living, being virtuous. James also talks in the New Testament about how everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Why? Because the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So anger might be an appropriate response sometimes to injustices, to evil, to wickedness, but then arguably an even more appropriate response than anger is to be calm and to think about what is true, what is wise, what is good here, that we would know it, that we would do it, what would be just, what would be fair, what would be reasonable, what would be righteous. Of course, I haven't finished the book yet, and I have to take it with a grain of salt. You should too. Don't be taken captive by vain and human philosophy. But as a answer, in part, to the emotivism of the present, which is so obsessed with how we feel and we say how we feel is our reality, it is refreshing to consider a more stoic way of relating to these things. But that said, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.